I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Glowworms. Welcome to The Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. Today I'm recording my intro from an idyllic countryside retreat in Cornwall, um, one of the most beautiful parts of the UK. I visited here last year with one of my best friends and we're back again to take in a little bit of the, the coast, the beautiful, dramatic Atlantic coast here in Cornwall. And today we're going for a, a gorgeous hike on Bodmin Moor, where there is, of course, a fabled beast stalking the moors, uh, the beast of Bodmin. Um, I mean, if we have a sighting, I'll let you know. Today's conversation, of course, was not recorded in Cornwall. We did pre-record this one a couple of weeks ago, and I'm thrilled that we get to put it out today. It's with a member of the House of Lords. I have been promising that we're going to have somebody who isn't a Labour Party-affiliated um, uh, member of Parliament or councillor on, and that's what we have today. So it's a really interesting conversation. Please comment. Uh, you can at me on social media. You can email me. You can obviously follow me on socials if you don't already. I'm at Vanity Von Glow on Instagram. It's always great to hear from you, and we'd love as well if you can share the podcast because that's how we grow the audience. You probably know already that I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival in August, not just to do my drag queen wine tasting events with Beth Brickenden, but also 26 back-to-back versions of this podcast in live talk show form. It will be very raucous, it will be very funny, and hopefully you can buy a ticket and see me there. Baroness Fox of Buckley. A writer, journalist, lecturer and politician who sits in the House of Lords as a non-affiliated life peer. She is the director of the Think Tank, the Academy of Ideas, which for many years hosted the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican here in London, where intellectuals, philosophers, journalists, etc. from all around the world have gathered for debates and panel discussions and seminars on the great questions of the day. I've contributed to the Battle of Ideas myself in the past and was so glad to be invited along and to have met Claire Fox, who I first encountered listening to the BBC's Moral Maze on Radio 4 as a teenager. Claire Fox is now a life peer in the House of Lords, but wasn't always a supporter of its existence. So I'm thrilled to be talking to her today. Hello, Claire. How are you? It's great to be with you. Or should should I be calling you your ladyship? (laughs) <laughs> well, of course, it's always wonderful to get the title, but it's so embarrassing that, uh, no, Claire is fine, thank you. I, I, I'll, I'll allow fine. you to treat me as one of the plebs for today. 
Very good. Now, you've been outspoken um, and have been quite anti-establishment in many ways for your whole life. You were originally a member and activist of the Revolutionary Communist Party back in the 80s and 90s. So how did a person who is a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party come to accept a peerage in the House of Lords? Well, I think the prior question is how on earth I got offered one. I mean, that has to be a story in and of itself. But um, I still consider myself to be anti-establishment. And ironically, I still think that the House of Lords should be abolished. And when I was offered the House, and, and it would be absolutely right for listeners to say, you're a hypocrite then. And I think that there is a hypocrisy in me taking a position at the House of Lords. When I was offered it, I... I, I, you know, I, I just said no straight away. I mean, as you would, like, don't be mad. Of course not. And it was undoubtedly tangled up with um, the fact that I'd sort of the Brexit Party MEP and the Conservative government wanted to acknowledge that the Brexit Party had contributed to Boris Johnson getting the leadership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also that they, they, they talked about the battle of ideas and free speech and the important work that the Academy of Ideas had done. So they said all the right things. But the, but the main thing I think I thought was, I'm at an age where I thought, well, the House of Lords should be abolished. It's unconstitutional to have, or it's, it's anti-democratic to have an unelected second chamber. But it's a huge platform. I'm getting on. Maybe I can use that platform to argue some of the things that I believe in. And I then made a commitment that if I took it, which it took me eight years to decide, but when I did, that I'd you know, put every single one of my speeches online and I'd do a weekly uh, update on what happens inside the Lords and it's called Inside the Lords and you can sign up to it. So I kind of do a frank what goes on behind the scenes and then I try and open it up to a bit more public scrutiny. Um, and that's what I've done. Yeah, it's interesting that the House of Lords doesn't have the same level of visibility for us, the public, as the Commons, because we're always seeing viral clips of, we just had Jess Phillips on the podcast recently, and she yeah. is, she's very noisy in the House chamber when she wants to be, and, and that's part of the tradition of the House of Commons. It's not as often we see stuff from the Lords, and your videos are quite interesting, because we get to see some of the processes. What frustrates you most about that body of government? Well, I, I think actually it is that I had not understood this before I became a member of it, that the House of Lords actually has a really disproportionate influence on legislation. You know, not, no, not, no law is passed in this country without it going through quite a lengthy procedure in the House of Lords. And the House of Lords really can stand in the way. Now, often I don't like the kind of uh, laws that the government are trying to pass. But that should be something which the electorate decides on, not a kind of group of unelected peers in the House of Lords. But actually, we can have a, a disproportionate influence on legislation and we're not accountable, which is one of the reasons why you're absolutely right. You, you see a lot of what happens in the House of Commons. I don't think people realise just how important the House of Lords is in terms of shaping the way the laws are made. And I think people should know about that and comment on it. And that's what I try and do. And when you say what, what annoys me most, I mean, there is an atmosphere of the great and the good. I mean, you, we had a little joke there at the beginning and you said, you know, ladyship and all this. I mean, it is extraordinary to me that people get made a, you know, a baroness or a lord because a politician 
in number 10 asks them to be. That's how everybody gets it, right? And then they behave as though they're a baroness or a lord. Like, like <laughs> it's, it's like it's like weird thing, or it's like sort of like suddenly these perfectly ordinary people kind of wander around as though they've as though they've sort of become something. And it's like sort of like don't be ridiculous, you're the same person. And it's a title, but you don't have to behave as though. I mean, they literally is are lordly. And so there's a sort of yeah. self, there's a self-satisfaction and a self-regard that is quite extraordinary. And the, and the other thing that's really funny is in the House of Lords, the appointed House of Lords are very kind of high, snotty about the hereditary lords. They're the ones that everybody has a go at for being undemocratic. Whereas I think at least it's fairly clear that if you're kind of, I mean, it might be completely ridiculous and mad that you have a bloodline a hereditary bloodline. And there's like, I think 86 hereditary peers, it's limited to that number. But at least you kind of are clear, oh yes, that's the Salisbury line. It goes back from the Tudors. You know what I mean? Like we know what they're doing. I mean, what am I doing there? But not what am I doing? What's Neil Kinnock doing there? What's John Prescott doing there? What all these, I, I keep bumping into people who, who I sort of have only last saw on spitting image or something. Do you know what I mean? I didn't even offer them. I don't <laughs> even know that I'm like a bit like, oh, I didn't know you were still alive. Um, but they behave as though we the House of Lords behaves as though it's a kind of very it, people behave as though they deserve their positions, and I'm suggesting they don't. There's a thing about like conferring legitimacy onto a person. So when somebody gets knighted, then it's you know the state, the sovereign, the the whole establishment is saying you are legitimized. And I suppose that when you were asking or when you were saying, you know, the real question here is like, why was Claire Fox offered uh, to, to become a Baroness? Because historically, I mean, your work has been uh, it, under no other government would you necessarily have been offered this position. You're quite right to say that. Um, and we should probably talk about your having been an MEP for the Brexit Party so that people have context for that. You are a staunch Democrat, and that's your objection to the House of Lords. So tell us why you ran for the Brexit Party. There will be some listeners to this podcast who might struggle to reconcile still the fact that the UK did vote to leave the EU. Well, I think that's the basis on which I'm in the House of Lords, that what happened was nothing that I did was extraordinary, but that Brexit was extraordinary in the history of the United Kingdom. And I think what was extraordinary about it was that the referendum result was not expected by the establishment. They called a legal referendum and millions of people all around the country sat around in families and discussed what way they should vote. And it was, we were, people were told it was the most important thing they'd ever, the most important vote they'd ever have in their lifetimes. And they took it seriously. And we all know in the build up to that referendum and, and for listeners who, who voted to remain in the European Union. Loads of my friends voted to remain and I voted to leave, inspired by the likes of Tony Bennon as a strong left tradition of Euroscepticism. I voted to leave, it wasn't like the most important thing in the world to me. <coughs> I voted to leave, it wasn't the most important thing in the world to me, but it was, you know, I thought, good, we get asked and we'll leave. What, what then happened was extraordinary was that, that after the vote occurred, this huge swathes of the establishment figures said, well, you've made a terrible error and voted the wrong way, and we're going to stop it. 
And that created a real democratic crisis in the country because people were shocked that their vote was treated with such contempt. Um, a lot of my family who voted Remain were shocked at their own side doing that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they sort of were bitterly disappointed to leave the EU, but didn't think that they didn't think there should be a second referendum until we got it right, or they didn't think that anyone who voted Leave was a racist, ignorant, scumbag, influenced by Russian bots or all the horrible things that were said. So the reason I stood for the Brexit Party was quite straightforwardly that all those years later, after that vote had happened, we were still in the European Union. Um, whilst there was another European Union election due. And it was almost like the last chance saloon to indicate that people supported, still supported Brexit, Leave still supported Brexit. And I made a, a, a weird decision for me because it was a party set up by Nigel Farage, who I had nothing to do with, didn't know him personally or anything and is associated with politics that I'm not very comfortable with on it, some issues. And he felt the same about me, I'm sure. Uh, and also, um, I had no interest in being an elected politician, but I kept going around criticising everyone else and saying, somebody's got to do something, somebody's got to stand. <laughs> and, then, and then I thought, oh, maybe I'm being a coward. So I was being a coward, so I stood. And then I, and then I came top of the poll, you know, in the Northwest and I was an MEP for six months. And I think that that created a massive uproar. If you, if you remember, it led to a crisis in the Conservative Party because they got absolutely hammered in those European elections as, and lost loads of seats and were humiliated. That led to the leadership uh, crisis in the Tory party that led to Boris Johnson saying he'd get Brexit done. And that's why Boris Johnson or number 10, not that, you know, because they approached, offered uh, peerages to myself, to Gisela Stewart, uh, who's a former Labour MP, to Kate Hoey, a former Labour MP, because we were kind of three women associated with Brexit, not Conservatives, but that's why we were offered independent peerages and all three of us took them. So in a way, Claire, you're running for the Brexit party and becoming an MEP, is to blame for us having Boris Johnson presently. I'm afraid. As I'm afraid I have to take full responsibility. Uh, the the good bit was was that I'm very proud of the fact that it meant that the endless attempts at overturning the referendum result were thwarted. I'm not suggesting that Brexit, as it's presently playing itself out, is particularly saving for people, and there's lots of problems with it and. Goodness knows there's lots of problems with Boris Johnson that you could talk about endlessly. But I do think that the Labour Party's hammering at that 2019 election by red wall Labour voters who broke the habit of generations of their family voting Labour and voted for Boris Johnson wasn't because they'd all suddenly become Conservatives, but because they wanted somebody to honour their vote and they used Boris Johnson to do that. And um, that's still playing out. The repercussions of that are still playing out. It always struck me around that time, and I didn't vote for Brexit, um, but it struck me that to not honour uh, the outcome of a referendum sows the seeds for the most extreme potential outcomes for a democracy, i.e., you know, if you look at... Uh, I mean, I know you were very outspoken about Ireland during the 90s when there were 
you know the the sort of events of that crisis for for Ireland and Britain um but when people feel like they're they're in a union or part of a political situation that they don't want to be in that's when people's behavior can become extremely extreme and the idea to me that half the more than half the country vote to leave the EU and that we then wouldn't leave the EU I was like well you that will damage our country in a way that's spiritual will damage us far more than yeah. whatever the effects of leaving Brexit will be. People were seething. I mean, that's what you're referring to. It was getting quite dangerous because people were so incandescent after years of kind of almost bullying from 2016 to 2019, which was like, your will will not prevail. And if a democratic country tells the demos, <laughs> The voters that their votes are wrong and they're going to be ignored if you indeed withdraw losers consent we saw donald trump try and do that in america right tried to just say biden didn't win and right. this is the end of democracy right if you, if you go around saying there's been a democratic vote we don't believe you you know you cheated really or you know whatever way you take it and, and withdrawing losers consent then you are absolutely right that i'm afraid that if you remove the strength of the democratic vote from ordinary people, they might choose other means. What, what does disillusion, yeah. and you, you referred to Alan, if people felt their, their votes didn't count because of the gerrymandering explicitly understood that you could never win in an election. And the civil rights movement felt, and, and as it were, we know where that ended, right? So, so you know, this is, this is a well-known democratic point that democracy in a way is a safety valve for people being allowed to, to shape the future of their society. And if you remove that from them, then they don't all just go to sleep and become passive. So yes, you're right. That's that's partly why I stood, by the way, because I was actually getting worried. I was meeting more and more people who were so desperate, they were saying, you know, we're you know that you could see um, you know something unpleasant was brewing because people were so frustrated. Yeah, well, um, when I was younger, and I've told you this story before, <laughs> I'm not sure you appreciate it, but when I was a teenager, I used to listen to the Moral Maze on BBC Radio Four. Yeah. Now, the Moral Maze was a panel show where they would take a philosophical question, so it could be something like. Um, the question of euthanasia or they could be discussing the dangers of the internet or the Iraq war. I mean, those were the sorts of things at the time, the early 2000s. Um, genetically modified crops, you know, which is hilarious to me because that used to be such that used to be such a subject of, of conversation. To me, it's a no brainer that like we've literally were able to feed swathes of the world with genetically modified lentils that are resistant to certain strains of uh, certain um, pesticides and, or whatever else. Um, so anyway, back in those days, you were a frequent panelist on there. And for me as a young person, I found that the moral maze was a good exercise because you would, you would hear considered approaches to any given question. Um, and I was a fan of debating and all that at that time. So it was really, it was entertainment, but it was also food from my brain. So I'm curious now, as a fan of reasoning, can you remember the last time that you changed your mind on something big? Uh, yes, I, 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 I was bemused when you told me that you listened to the Moral Maze. And the Moral Maze 
was a program that I was on for 20 years as a regular panelist and only stopped when the BBC couldn't have somebody who was standing for the Brexit parties <laughs> so that was the end of my career on there but um and it's a real shame because I'm not avoiding your question because I actually learned how to think quite a lot through that process because it was very good for me to be confronted with these very difficult thorny moral questions and to have to cross-examine guests who have the opposite view and listen to fellow panelists and and so I've always been a great fan of trying to be open-minded and it's a difficult one because you also have principles that you believe in and so you don't want to be the kind of person who goes Oh, change your mind because I've heard a better argument every five minutes because that can just mean that you've got no principles at all. So yes, I changed yeah. my mind recently on something very much in this context, which is that I'm very um, worried about the fact that the government in the new elections bill are bringing in voter ID, photo ID right. at election booths, and I thought this was a, an unnecessary, I think thought it was an unnecessary thing to do because hardly any impersonation happens at the electoral uh, in electoral politics where there is fraud it's largely through postal ballots and there was already amendments dealing with that so why did they need this photo id and i was arguing to the government that they might be creating a moral panic that would undermine people's belief in democracy i made that speech and mm-hmm. I, I spoke a couple of times on it and i got absolutely inundated and I mean really massively by people saying what's wrong with you you know what's wrong with photo ID it will shore up the democratic process it really guarantees you know the vote matters to us we want to be able to trust it and anyone who says it's too difficult to get photo IDs talking nonsense it's condescending to suggest that work class people or people from BM e-communities won't be able to get access to it because that's what the opposition was saying not me but they were all saying this is the Tory stealing working class and black votes because from people you know all this kind of thing they're disenfranchising people so it became a real kind of culture war in the Lords. anyway I got so inundated that I really thought about it and I thought maybe I'm wrong and I actually stood up and made a speech only two weeks ago saying I think I might be have to reconsider this because if it's the case that people want voter photo ID as a demonstration of their commitment to the vote and democracy, maybe um, that that is worth considering. So although I'm not entirely sure, it, I really was forced to think again. And it wasn't because it was like a, a populist backlash. It was more that the arguments that people were putting made me reconsider my own arguments. And I think you have to always be prepared for that. I'm having a major dilemma today um, about the Rwanda, um, the outsourcing of refugees to Rwanda, uh, which which I find distasteful, you know, unpleasant. It's like, oh God, it's like outsourcing, dumping the problem somewhere. I think all those things, right? I also know that it's absolutely ridiculous that the any British, any government can't control its borders, right? And so there has to be, a decision about what you do and even though one can have huge sympathy with people coming over in those boats you also have to say well are you just going to say anyone can come into the country and it's certainly not democratically what people want and a democracy has to be able to control its borders and it's so that you know so its citizens are and all that so i'm torn i don't know what it's all very well me being sniffy about sending people to rwanda but 
but what is my solution? I don't know that I've got one. I'm not quite sure what should be done. And so I'm posing these issues as, you know, if you're a, if you're a liberal, which I am, but who's sort of also uh, trying to be democratic and think through what the majority of people support and how you uh, you deal with a democratic society, I think you're always going to be challenged and you have to be open to changing your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I, I was just laughing with the, with the producer of the Vanity Project before you came on the call because I just saw an absurd infographic from the Conservatives of Priti Patel sitting in front of signs that say the deal is done and that we're going to be sending uh, people to Rwanda for to be processed. And I remember a few months ago, she was trying to send them to St. Helena, or is it St. Helens, the island in the Atlantic? Um, and yeah, it's interesting how the world will never cease to fire new and novel moral questions at us. So the question of voter ID, you know, that wasn't a subject for discussion that was worrying anyone five years ago, 10 years ago, at, at, at this scale. Even the idea to me of, of processing refugees and, and uh, illegal immigrants in another country, that's, you know, that that's a question now it's like right well yeah I don't know how to feel about that I need to sit and think about that I don't have a set answer for that and obviously people who are very ideologically motivated will have an answer for everything because their ideology rescues them rescues them from having to think but the work is never done you always have to keep considering well also you have to you have to be prepared to say that you you know I've just been listening to Radio 4's discussion on this issue and I'm very sympathetic to um, a lot of people who are feel very uncomfortable about the Rwanda suggestion. But I've sat through the, the, the border and nationalities bill in the House of Lords where these debates have been going on only recently, it's still not yet resolved. And the tone of the people who are, are saying that, you know, you should welcome all refugees regardless and accept at face value that people are refugees when they say they're refugees, you know what I mean? which seems at the very least naive. Um, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to come to this country to work, by the way. But the idea that, but you know that if you want to come to this country, you have to say you're a refugee, otherwise you're not going to get in. So everybody says they're a refugee. And then, but the whole tone of the debate is, we're the nice, humane people versus all those nasty, grubby racists out there who want to do something else. And I, and I think that, that we have to be very careful, which is people want control. Any nation state has to have control of its borders. Everybody is humane. People are not being mean. There is a reason why people are saying, um, if you live in, in northern towns, well, it's all right for you, but we haven't got any resources here and we're worried about this, you should at least be able to engage those people without shouting at them or calling them names. And so I just think it's more always more complicated than one's sense of certainty about one's own righteousness. That's all I'm saying. I, I, so ideology is good, I mean, in, in lots of ways, because it gives you a sense of where you stand in the world. I believe in freedom, like that's one of my big core things. But it doesn't mean you should stop thinking and you've got to take into account what your fellow citizens want. You've got to be able to persuade people. There's loads of things I want to change the world on, but I can't just impose it. I've got to persuade the majority of people to agree with me. That's what democracy is like. 
bit of a pain, really. Much easier in China because you don't have to persuade anyone. It's great fun. You know, you can just say, we've decided this is the right thing. We don't bother asking anyone. We just do it. That is called enlightened um, uh, authoritarianism. When I say enlightened, they think they're enlightened because they're doing the best thing. And whether we like it or not, I think democracy is a better system than dictatorship, but it's a bloody pain in the neck because voters don't always agree with me. But that's why, you know. In the 80s and 90s, you were a campaigner to convince and persuade people um, well, the Revolutionary Communist Party published the Living Marxism magazine, which you were involved with. So, um, you know, you've been involved in attempts to persuade people to your way of thinking for many years. Are you still a revolutionary communist? Well, I don't. I, there's no such um, organisation now. And I, I think that I, I don't want in any way to distance myself from that because I was very convinced by the need for moving um that capitalism wasn't good enough and that we needed a different social system. And I thought that the particular organization I was in was, was really thought provoking and thoughtful. And the magazine Living Marxism was fantastic magazine. that I didn't always agree with everything in it, but I really enjoyed it. And I went out and sold it and talked to people about uh, all aspects. And you know, what people sort of sometimes think is that you went out and said to people on the street, hello, would you, do you want revolution? But obviously you were talking about very particular issues and that might have been the um, attacks on free speech or it might have been the uh, problems of a nanny state undermining people's autonomy, might have been issues around indeed uh, racism or it might have been about war in Iraq or any of these things, right? So whatever was in the magazine. And I think that we had a particular take on the world that was very influential on my way of thinking when the revolutionary communist party ended in I can't remember when it was and um, in the end of the 90s whatever it was because that whole idea of revolutionary politics had kind of run out of steam in many ways for so many people i mean there was what what so, what people who are a lot younger than me uh, don't realize is that when i for example was at university, there was about 15 different revolutionary organisations you could join, right? Every Loads of people joined revolutionary. It was quite a big thing on the left, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you could work, people were in militant or they were in, I don't know, Workers' Power or they were in Socialist Workers' Party or the Revolutionary Communist Party. It was like loads of Workers' Revolutionary Party. It was all these different things. It all sounds a bit mad now, but at the time we were all very earnest. We were, we were the kind of remnants of the 60s and 70s revolutions and, and youth revolutions and so on. And so you, you've got this kind of bubbling up of people who thought we want to change the world. We want to do it more efficient. We want to do it. We don't believe the Labour Party is going to do it because they're boring and they'd sold out workers and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, 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 I think I'm very influenced by a Marxist way of understanding the world because a Marxist way of understanding the world is that you take seriously the material reality of people's living conditions, that you understand something about the way the economy works, but also that you are sensitive to historical specificity and that you look at the world that you live in and you work out the most progressive way that you think you can change it. 
So now I've just kind of given up the labels. But I don't think of myself as others try and caricature me as having moved to the right. And the only reason why they say that is because it's always been seen that these days being a free speech advocate gets you dubbed somehow dodgy and on the right. Brexit, yeah. which, as I've already explained, had a big left tradition historically got you dubbed as on the right. You know, economic development uh, and economic growth, which was always part of a, a left wing Marxist uh, position, because that's clashed with green ideology. And therefore, I'm still for economic development and growth. And therefore, people say, oh, you're on the right and you're anti green. So there's all these things out of nowhere have suddenly become right wing, apparently. I get called right wing, whereas it's all, I just am saying the same thing I said before. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Um, I want to read you a quote, which, uh, which is... Uh... <laughs> echoes some of what you've just said there. So this is from The Spectator, but going back a few years, I think maybe about 10 years ago. Um, Enlightenment values is a phrase you hear being used a lot by Claire Fox and her colleagues. What they mean by this is what others among us might call good old fashioned common sense, looking at the world as it really is rather than as it ought to be, forming policies on the basis of what will actually work rather than by trying to force square pegs into round holes, working with human nature, not against it. As far as Fox and her crew are concerned, this is a Marxist position. As far as I'm concerned, it's a traditional Tory position. And that's from J James Dellingpole. But I think it was about 20, about 10 years ago anyway. So that 
that speaks to that idea that you may now in the in the in the matrix of the, this era to some people you have you have the signifiers of somebody who would be right wing but 20 years ago those signifiers actually meant different things that's right left that's and right, right. don't that's mean don't... yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right left and right just don't mean i mean you and i have both encountered this in relation to free speech matters and there's nothing more irritating i mean there you are being a supporter of a perfectly you know based on reason the need to hear more arguments to speak freely and 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 this is how radical positions have been gained over the years how does anyone think social change happened without free speech mm -hmm. and all the great revolutionaries and radicals and people who fought for our equalities over the years fought for free speech alongside it and yet somehow in 2022 or in the last 10 years if you basically say i believe in free speech no ifs no buts you're like some kind of fascist enabler and mm -hmm. it, it's genuinely i have been introduced on discussions i've been at where people say claire fox who is very extreme because she believes in free speech no ifs no buts and embraces this extreme and it makes it sound as though i'm some kind of absolute nutter whereas that used to be a fundamental across left and right that we all agreed <laughs> on free speech i mean that was like everybody yeah. thought that didn't they apart from you know authoritarian regimes yeah now it's unusual you you wrote a, a little book called i find that offensive which people can pick up they'll be able to buy that online um, where you write about the threats to free speech norms. Now, I think it was first published in 2016. Um, and then you had the, the second edition in which you have a new foreword in which you mention me, Vanity Von Glow, uh, which is always exciting to be in a book um, <clears throat> and not an erotic fiction. Um, at the time, people were still scoffing about free speech concerns. I think some people felt like it was, you know, a distracting talking point from the right. And that's how I was smeared a lot around that time. But your book actually details a lot of really quite strange cases in the country where people were prosecuted or asked, you know, questioned by police for absurd speech violations. So now in 2022, we do actually have a government who are intent on bringing in the, uh, the new is it police? I always forget what it's called, the Police Crimes and Sentencing Act yeah. Bill, yeah, yeah. Um, which will give the police new powers to limit people's ability to protest on the subjective basis of whether or not the protest is annoying to who, anyone. We're not sure, the Home Secretary, the police, the neighbours next door. Um, so I think people are starting to wake up to the idea that free speech needs to be renewed by each generation. And I know you've talked about that before. How do we do that? <laughs> How do we encourage people to understand its value? Well, I think it's it's um, it is very true that when I brought the book out, that that I was kind of trying to do a warning for what was happening in America, that saying that I was seeing trends of it coming over here, particularly in relation to what was happening on university campuses, and people thought that I was exaggerating it and caricaturing the situation, whereas actually. I think we can look back now and say that I was understating the issue. And without rehearsing what happened to you, I was genuinely, I didn't know you at all then. I just had read the story and I was so shocked at the way those things could arbitrarily happen to people that, you know, somebody could be so 
you know, as it were, what's the phrase, you know, publicly doxed, you know, an attempt at destroying their career. So this was almost, you were kind of like one of the victims of cancel culture before cancel culture had its name. You know, I, I, cancel culture, which is not just that you deny someone's speech, but you try and destroy their career. You basically try and make, cancel them from public life. And as we know, that's become a huge problem. Now, what I think has changed is that a number of significant things have changed, which is there's been a fair amount of gaslighting over the last few years where people will say there is not a free speech crisis. This has gone on and on and on. So that makes it worse. So they say the only people who say there's a free speech crisis are those people who really are bigots and want the freedom to speak their bigotry. And, um, and, and it's exaggerated and it's a moral panic. But as more and more people have been uh, the victims of cancer culture across the political spectrum, I think it's sort of begun to dawn on people. And probably one of the great shifts has been the debate around gender critical feminism, which is if you want a group of people who, who may have been less, um, you know, a lot of feminist thinkers, philosophers, academics and activists were probably not people, were, they could well have been people who actually thought that if you were a free speech absolutist, you were a problem. But because of the issue around, without getting into that issue, we, because of the issues and the debates around trans ideology and um, um, gender critical feminism, a lot of people who were kind of good liberals on the left suddenly became the victims of cancel culture. And so more and more, and that, I think you start to see that happening now all the time, that people who are a bit, the kind of people who are a bit sniffy about somebody like me being a free speech campaigner, suddenly then find themselves being cancelled or themselves delegitimized by people saying you're in this or that, you know, you're a homophobic or you're a, racist or your or this that or the other and so i think there's much more sensitivity to the difficulties and the dangers of our assaults on free speech and you use that anti-protest bill i mean that's chilling for a start off and also they're going to be bringing in the online safety bill which is absolutely terrifying i mean genuinely terrifying yeah because we we, we just and, and every bit of hate crime um legislation or or guidance is is going to is used to silence people it, around such subjective methods that you, you would be frightened to speak. You'd be mm -hmm. frightened to do podcasts like this in case you misspeak. People will be worried about what they say. So it's already well, the, the atmosphere, thing is, but it's, yeah. Well, even as it is, like, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be doing this podcast. It was, it came out of a period where last year I, I decided to take a period of sobriety um, I wanted to change up the balance of things in my life. And I found with the sobriety um, of that period that I had the time and the bandwidth to have some conversations. Now we're in our second season and it's it's only now where I feel like I'm a bit more relaxed about, for example, you, you're bringing up the, the, the uh, subject of trans debate. And I was talking about this fleetingly with Jess Phillips recently as well and even as it stands I'm like tense about what to say because 
you will be you will be is a fact willfully misinterpreted by people who want to use the least generous definition of what you said or meant to beat you around the head online that is an actual guarantee there is no question about it yeah. so there's a cultural example of why you know we are you know governed by norms norms are particularly tense around people's ability to speak freely about certain subjects at the moment. The idea, though, now that people are starting to see, well, yeah, the government are exploiting people's new tension around speech to bring in legislation that's going to limit your ability to protest. And given how much everybody bloody loves to protest at the minute, I'm surprised they're not more upset about it. Well, I think people are upset, but they, but they want to be able to say free speech for me and not for thee. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things it's I'm afraid that there's an inconsistency that both exists on the left and on the right, which is, you know, I believe in free speech, but is a constant refrain. So people are now up in arms that their free speech is being attacked, but they don't necessarily see it, that you have to be able to defend people whose speech is violent, obnoxious. But just on, on the point yeah. you were making about the cultural point, and I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to delve into the issue, but I do think that cancel culture makes cowards of us all. And when I went into the House of Lords, and it was, it was, um, it was a particularly, uh, it ha was after a particularly unpleasant period because the media decided that I was the most egregious peerage that Boris Johnson had offered, and it was all over the papers for ages, and it wasn't very nice, and um, it wasn't very pleasant for me. So I was already feeling a bit shaky. I didn't know why I was going to the Lords anyway, and it was in the middle of a lockdown and all the people in the Lords were like, why has he brought this lunatic in? You know, to all sorts of And I was intimidated because it's the bloody Lords. And I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing here? And one of the first things that came up was this maternity bill for a maternity on for ministers. And um, it didn't use the word woman or mother in the bill. And I and I and I thought, oh God, no. A couple of people have noted it and uh, a couple of people in the commons mentioned it to people in the lords and it was going to be one of the first thing i spoke on and i thought please don't let me have to speak in the house of lords on the issue of biological sex versus gender in the first thing i do and i i, I genuinely i felt sick for a week i mean i did it and as it happens we eventually got mother put into the bill as a word. They wouldn't accept woman, but we got mother put in. But it was a fight, and of course I got a real load of stick about it. But but I didn't want to do it. And I didn't want to do it, not because I didn't believe in it, but because I was frightened. I was genuinely frightened. And that's what I mean about cancel culture makes cards and souls. So you were asking, what can we do? I think that it we can't just say to people, you know, speak out, damn the consequences. Because a lot of people are going to lose their jobs that way, right? Like, so you don't want, I don't want to be irresponsible about it and say to load of kids, you know, universities, you know, what you're scared of. I mean, I understand what they're scared of, right? I know what's going on. But I do think that it puts a particular obligation on those of us who have a platform like myself to, um, to be honest, to, to, to be brave and to give a lead. I also think we have to keep raising the issue of the free speech crisis so that people don't know what's going on and see what the consequences are, even if you don't. So that even if you're a student, 
who doesn't want to be brave about saying a particular thing. I think that there should be more free speech societies around. And, you know, at the Academy of Ideas, we, we run the Battle of Ideas Festival, as you mentioned, at the barbecue. We now have been running at Church House and we must invite you this year to, to participate. It'd be great to have you back. And we get thousands of people. We we run uh, tra- We run this thing called uh, Living uh, uh, Freedom, which is for under 30-year-olds which we're doing with the Free Speech Champions and Free Speech Union to encourage young people to know and understand the history and philosophy of freedom. I mean, everything and anything that you can contribute to creating uh, a, a, a richer discourse around what free speech means and why it's important, I think is what we need to do and not shy away from that at least. Absolutely. When... Um... When you were talking about uh, being at university and, you know, back in those days, because I, I think like you, you would have been in uni in the early 80s, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was it, yeah. Um, and like, you know, I'm in, my contact with that era is through the comedies that I watched, like growing up, you know, the great fucking Blackadder and all the other stuff that was around that time. Um, so I, I understand a bit of the spirit of the age. Um, and obviously these were the Thatcher years as well. So there was a yeah. lot of countercultural stuff going on back then. Um, so I wonder, would joining one of the many different revolutionary or radical groups in university at that time be something similar to the way that young people are perhaps inclined to join in with a Black Lives Matter chapter movement today? You know, because there's lots of different sub-movements around the questions of social justice that people are asking in this moment. I, th- I certainly think that, that, that to, to the extent that every generation, you know, young people often want to be the kind of saviors of the world, um, you know, there's a sort of idealism there, then, then it, there's something similar. And you, when you were indicating what the period was, you know, I was kind of going down as a young student to to miners picket lines, you know, during the miners strike, uh, you know, I, I I was working with the homeless, I was working with the recovering mentally ill, I was going on anti-rape, and, and there was like, there were in, 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 in Coventry where, where I was living, there was explicit racism, you know, there was big gangs of racists who'd go and burn out Asian families' homes, and, you know, this is like a period, I mean, it's hard to think that it was so like that, because it's not like that now, and in that sense, you know, some things have improved so that's the other thing that people don't like you to say you're not supposed to say but that was because lots of trade unionists and uh, activists all got together and fought racism and fought racism not got rid of it completely at all but nonetheless changed the mood and the social atmosphere and I went on all those anti-clause 28 marches all that's going on so although that was kind of like you could say well that was just me being a radical and, and, and anyone who goes on a Black Lives Matter's or a, or a extinction rebellion march, or gets embroiled in identity politics today. It's just the same. But actually, despite the kind of caricature, jokey bit of the just going around being revolting students, I actually read endlessly. I read books. I tried to understand the world. I constantly tried to improve my understanding of history and philosophy. So I don't. There was a there was a jokey bit of a kind of like just running around being an activist, but actually it was had an intellectual foundation. The problem I've got with a lot of today's activist movements is that they're 
basically narcissistically based on people's individual experience. So identity politics is a good one, which is why are you involved in this? Because I, as a black woman, have suffered this and my lived experience teaches me this. It's like, it's like that's not quite the same as having an, a, a, a philosophical commitment to equality based on the French Revolution. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like there's far too much of that. There's, there's all sorts of guilt around um, if you're white, you know, the whole white guilt thing and 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 so on. So a lot of it's not it's not very well informed. The, the, the extinction rebellion stuff is also a bit um, philosophically based on worst case scenarios, no sort of, uh, I mean, it's a we've got to act or the world will burn type, type approach. And so I'm much more critical of young people's movements today. I think that some of them are regressive and that I'm not prepared to just say, because they're young and idealistic, that you should kind of give them a free pass is what I'm saying. I, I think that there's some really, really dangerous, damaging, aspects of contemporary politics that are popular um, and identity politics is one of the worst ones for me so uh, I know I meant you're meant to be intimidated into silence because you know if you criticize the Black Lives Matters movement you can be easily accused of wanting black people to be killed by the police which as we know that's what what people would say and if you're white you're really meant to shut up and listen Whereas actually, I think that fighting racism is not something that should be confined to your skin colour, that the racialising of society is very dangerous and damaging, and that people are more than their identity, and that partly uh, being a progressive means transcending your particular identity, not saying it's the total defining feature of you. Camille Paglia talks about the... Um... You know, the 60s, there was a connection in student revolutionary movements to the idea of the spiritual and that back then, you know, when everyone was experimenting with LSD and whenever, you know, they were toying and playing around with Eastern religions on Western college campuses. And there was this sense of having, it wasn't about an identity, it was about a sense of spiritual identity. And that's something that I think we don't always have in the same way. We It feels like we're nowadays, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, people spend five hours a day on Instagram and on their phone and and we don't necessarily have that same connection to um, some sort of sense of universality or of, I don't want to say religion, but do you know what I, do you know what I mean? The, 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 even the music of the, of that era of the sixties and seventies had this like, psychedelic connecting and sharing that we are all a part of a cosmic oneness all that stuff yeah i mean i thought most of that was rubbish but i but <laughs> but it reflected it reflected exactly what you're saying which is it reflected a kind of commitment to universal values i think that's that's the key thing and it and that was reflected in a range of ways <clears throat> which was it was to overcome and transcend difference rather than to wallow in it right and there was some attempt at you know, people were very interested in international politics and were, and also understood, you know, think of some of the messes we get into today, you know, understood also um, the importance of learning from history and, you know, locating oneself historically, but what was universal in history. So you, you, you could listen to a great piece of classical music and it could talk to you across 
you know, centuries, you could read a great classical novel. You know, you could read Dostoevsky's uh, uh, novels and, you know, understand that was part of Russian literature, but also understand that it was the voice of humanity talking to you, some kid from North Wales as I was, you know, like, like and, and I thought he'd written it for me. You know, these, these, are, these are the things that you, these days, like you'd be denouncing Beethoven as a white supremacist. I mean, you know, Beethoven's been cancelled in the classical curriculum. Everything, uh, you know, there's all, all these kind of really, um, of only seeing people through very limited prisms of identity based on today's um, political prejudices and judging everybody against them. And as a consequence, and this is a shocking thing to consider, many English literature students, and I taught English literature for some time, so I've got a particular affection for it, are not reading great classical novels because they consider them to be part of the white supremacist, elitist uh, 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 canon um, and are not listening to great works of music because they consider them to be propaganda for white supremacy you know, and not reading some of the great philosophers because of their white privilege. My goodness, it's an impoverished way of understanding ideas for me. I was just in a previous episode of the podcast talking to the Irish drag queen Panty Bliss, who oh, was yes. very prominent yeah. in, the, in the equal marriage campaign there. And, and, uh, and she had some interesting perspectives about, you know, the, the modernity of Ireland now and stuff like that, which was great. But one of the things she said is that, you know, the internet in particular allows us to have conversations with people as though we're talking to their ideas and not to a whole person. And when you're in person with people, uh, then, then you're not just limited to being, you know, that identity or that that the person who opposes equal marriage. Suddenly, you can be lots of things. You could be funny. You could be smiling. You could be somebody who's nice to their mum. You could be somebody who's hungry. That, like, literally, you're a whole being. You're not just an identity, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, there's one final thing I wanted to ask you about, um, as I as I appreciate you will have business of the day being being the Baroness of Buckley. There is a slogan which I know grinds your gears and it was last summer's silence is violence, which urges people not already participating in a social movement to be outspoken in support of it. Otherwise, they are participating in violence against the cause. So obviously that was a popular slogan during Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and I think it's possible to support the Black Lives Matter movement, and not support all of their slogans, or it's possible to support the spirit of the movement without supporting all of their protests. Recently on the right, the GB News reporter Tom Harwood repeated the sentiment almost with silence's complicity around the war in Ukraine. So I wonder if you can tell me why is silence's violence a bad slogan? Because I, I think that the, the discussion we were having earlier about free speech is the assaults on free speech take different forms in different periods. And one of the bizarre, more bizarre aspects of, of speech arguments today is that you are not simply cancelled for saying the wrong thing, but cancelled if you don't say the right thing. So it, it becomes a kind of mandated speech. You know, the, the slogan silence is violence sums that up very well, because if you remember, um, the uh, in the initial shock, we were all in lockdown, of George Floyd's murder, but 
you've got these situations where music companies and arts organisations uh, uh, told people to put black uh, um, circle black, black square squares around their, their yeah. profiles. And, um, you know, people want to do that, that's fine. But to be told by the boss that you've got to do it. And then I was kind of contacted by quite a number of people because of my free speech stance, who basically, people who said, I don't want to put a black square around my profile. We were actually called out in staff meetings and Zoom staff meetings. And people were being yeah. admonished for not, you know, wearing the right symbol. And at the moment, you've got a bit, this is where Tom Harwood, I think, was was entering the fray. Um, when it was, it's, it's almost as though you've got to speak out and say, I support Zelensky and Ukraine. And if you don't say it, and I think this was in relation particularly to Russian, either sports Russians, people or yeah. Russians saying it, then we can assume you're a Putin apologist, really. And I thought, God, yeah. this is terrible. Right now, I mean, uh, you know, and it's like, it's like you, we just know it's the kind of like, why haven't you got a Ukraine flag in your in your in your profile like that does that mean the number of times people say to me on on social media you have not commented on this i mean i haven't commented on loads of bloody things right i don't i do not comment on absolutely everything so it's very dangerous isn't it because it's what it's doing is it's asking you to repeat by rote the 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 contemporary orthodoxy of the day and if you don't say the right thing so it encourages people to speak in bad faith because you know um, what you're meant to say. And if I could just finally explain it, the civil service has got a thing called uh, uh, um, race ambassadors in which members of staff are encouraged to go around workplaces and encourage fellow members of staff to have constructive conversations about race issues. And uh, you can imagine somebody sidling up to you in the uh, at the water cooler, can't you? Can I have a constructive conversation with you about race matters, please? And, um, and uh, and they literally invited to 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 report on if people, you know, like to sort of note down people who have got problematic attitudes. Now, that destroys any possible spontaneous interactions that might happen in a workplace. It's like spies. And you, yeah. you will either sort of repeat what you think they want, you want them to say, or you won't say anything, but you're not allowed to not say anything because silence is violence. Or you kind of like... If you say even a smidgen the wrong thing or say, well, actually, I'm not really sure whether I agree with this sort of um, uh, uh, critical race theory views on this, you know, will you be sacked? Will you be called out? And so I think that we have to be free to think aloud, to 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 say things that maybe we're not sure about, to be able to say things that other people object to so that we can have an argument about it. And certainly not simply say something because we think that if we don't say it, we might get cancelled. That's a that is the more that's almost more authoritarian than censorship for me. Yeah. Well, that's one of the main reasons for me for wanting to have conversations on the podcast. Here we sometimes have guests who are entertainers, or we'll sometimes have people who are not adjacent to any of these questions by their work at all. Um, but it's interesting to see a through line, you know, of like wanting to have empathy for one another um, to understand that we're all trying to work things out and to have these conversations. And that's what I'm hoping the podcast will be for our listeners as well. And they'll get to hear some ideas they haven't heard before and 
be uh, entertained. So thank you so much for joining us on The Vanity Project. You've been a fabulous guest and I wish you all the best with your continued work in the House of Lords. Thank you very much, Vanity. Once again, we find ourselves here at the end of a Vanity Project episode in the Queen's Corner, which is where I interview, well, it's not really an interview, it's more of a gossip, a quick chat with one of my drag queen pals. Often it's a pal from Nightlife who isn't a drag queen, but today it is a pal from Nightlife who is a drag queen. It's none other than Nancy Clanch. Oh, hello, dear. Hello, dear. Lovely to be having you on the podcast. Um, we, we, we only speak... Uh, when it's in public we don't see each other otherwise so this is the first time i've seen you since before the pandemic i know and my sellout show at the phoenix arts club was that god that was so long ago i literally don't remember i know it was february 2020. gosh it's been a long time since then nancy clench and the next time you'll see me in in person is at my next show at the phoenix arts club are you trying to shamelessly plug your shows here on the podcast? As if I would use an opportunity to do some shameless promotion. But it is on the it is on the fifteenth of June. Well, if anyone is interested, they can come and see Nancy Clench in London on the fifteenth of June. Uh, what did you make of Baroness Claire Fox? Wow, well, at one point I thought you were going to start flying away in your spiritual cosmic nonsense, and I'm so glad that she <laughs> said that was a lot of nonsense. Your arms were flailing, you were, you were, you were summoning the, the, the spirits of Kate Bush and Sarah Brightman, and I, um, I was just so glad that she was like, oh, I find that a lot of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I lost my thread a bit there, because I think it was... I was trying to say that it was like a sense of something bigger than yourself, you know, that is that what spiritualism is? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's mm. not just you, it's there's more, be it philosophy, be it religion, be it the things you think about. Um, sometimes it seems like we're quite myopic nowadays and we're very focused on like me, me, me. Yeah, I guess, I guess there was, I remember the protests of, of old going down on, on buses to stop the war protests and you were with a bunch of hippies really and, and i don't yeah. think that necessarily happens in the same way i think you know we're in a more middle class protesting um arena where people would get the train or fly down to london if they had to protest do you think that, well I don't, not for an extinction rebellion one surely. well well um, you'd like to hope not but not if you're emma thompson dear Oh, I know. I loved Emma Thompson had flown from LA to do an Extinction Rebellion protest and a journalist said, do you find it hypocritical that you've flown all the way here for an environmental protest? And she just went, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and that and I love her. Oh, well, well, everyone loves Emma Thompson, or everyone should love Emma Thompson, although very, quite illiterate. Remember, you remember a time where we saw a letter penned by Emma Thompson in the Budgeons in Belsize Park campaigning against a Tesco. That's right, when we used to live in Belsize Park together mm. in North London, just in the area that, that Emma Thompson grew up and lived in. And the local budgets, like a family owned grocery store was being closed. No, it wasn't being closed, but a big or a little Tesco. Competition. A little Tesco. Competition from Tesco. A Tesco was going to open. And so there was a campaign to stop Tesco being opened. And Emma Thompson had a letter that was put on the cork board in the front of Budgeons. So we could all see <laughs> local celebrity Emma Thompson, Oscar winner. <laughs> 
um, didn't support this, but it looked like she'd written it with her feet. <laughs> it looked like, it looked it like was, a it looked like a ransom note. <laughs> it was terrible handwriting. It was just, and I was surprised because in my mind, Emma Thompson, a Cambridge University alum, I thought she would, you know, have some beautiful scrawl. And mm. I, do you know? Do you? I wonder to this day if some if it, that was just. I wonder if it was someone that. else. Um, but you were talking about hypocrites, and I thought it was really interesting that Claire owns the hypocritical nature of her sitting in the House of Lords as someone that even still would like to see it abolished. But I, I guess that's what gives her a little bit of extra flavour for being there. I wanted to ask her if she would ever give the peerage back, like maybe when she gets to, you know, her 80s and she's no longer going to. But the thing is, the Lords often keep going right until the day they die. Well, it's but... interesting you say that because actually recently there have been peers who have retired from the Lords. And actually, I don't think it was a common thing to happen. Um, but I think more and more now, because there is such, there's more public scrutiny with the in the era of social media, people are just like, oh, well, I can't be fucked anymore. Like, see you later. Yeah, you know, they get paid. Like, you get like a £300 a day allowance for every day that you spend there. So you can well, it go was in day. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, you mentioned um, how the House of Lord, the House of Commons has a lot more viral clips. The only clips of the House of Lords I remember going viral is watching people sleep on, on the benches, and it's exactly for that reason that they're being paid £300 to be there. <laughs> yeah, she's, um, she's somebody who I've always found Claire really warm and very plain-spoken. Plain-spokenness is something I think I, I seem to be drawn to, and I like people who are quite like, and I like them to be plain spoken with me as well. Like when she said, "No, I think that's a load of nonsense." Spiritual <laughs> stuff. Um, it's interesting because there were, you know, there there will be things that she said there that people find a bit controversial. Um, you know, what do you think would stand out there that might cause people to bristle? Oh, I think there's a there's a lot of things. Um, I think that. Um, you know, obviously the, the trans debate is is a big one that I, I know you've talked about in your podcast a lot, not, I think, from any real <laughs> want or willingness from you, but it seems to, everyone seems to, br to bring it up. Um, I think there's issues of, of, of race that um, that I think there will be some people that, that don't agree with her on, myself included. Um, but ultimately, you know, the fact that she's... She seems to be open and open and willing to have a conversation rather than the, her her view is the be all and end all. Yeah, I think you could sit and have a drink with Claire Fox, no matter who you are, and she would be interested to understand your perspective better. And if you were open minded and open hearted, we'd have a really good dialogue with her. And like, that's what we want. I mean, that's literally what I would like to see become the culture in our society, which it, I think it already is, but I think it's only, it's only, it's only some people who have a strong <laughs> resistance to that type of conversation, but they're the people that have been holding the mics for quite a while, it feels. Yeah, I think it was, it's interesting what Jess Phillips said in one of your earlier podcasts was that, you know, you can't, always trust some of the people that shout the loudest because often they're bad actors and Claire mentioned that um, I think that specific phrase bad actors 
Um, and I, I think that's really interesting is what is the intent? Now, I don't think that any of Claire's intentions of what she was saying was in bad faith or in a, an attempt to hurt or harm anyone. Um, but we can still disagree. I could still disagree with her and say, no, I don't, I don't agree with you on that. Um, but I don't think she's a bad actor. I don't think many people that are having these conversations are bad actors, generally because we're just having a conversation and we're not on the picket line shouting with some slogans. Yeah, and like there's nothing to be gained or lost by having it. Well, there is stuff to be gained and lost by having open and honest conversations on the podcast because people will love to tweet at you. Worst case scenario, come and knocking on your door. Um, well, Nancy Clench, thank you so much for joining us on today's it's a pleasure. Corner. I'm sure you'll be back again further down the line. Um, we've got a few more left in this series. Do we? Well, actually, I say that. I don't know when this episode's going out. This might be the last one. No, probably not. We'll make a fanfare for the last one, will we? Yeah, I'm sure you will. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us again on The Vanity Project. You can subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget that sharing it really helps us because it means more people see it. Some people don't even know we exist. Can you imagine how empty their lives must be? We'll see and, give it, and if you use Apple Podcasts, give it a little review. Mm. Yeah, do that as well. Listen to Nancy Clench. Knows all about it. Yes. Until next wow. time. Cheers. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. 
So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 